I think we've got everybody, so let's start with prayer that we're going to get, at least for now. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together today around your son, Jesus, to hear from him all that you would uh, have us know and learn, but most especially uh, who he is and what he has done for us in his cross. Uh, We ask that you always shine the spotlight upon this cross, that we may see in Jesus um, the way, the truth, and the life. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I gave you another introduction. I... uh, I know this. Ron's, Ron's anxious. I can tell. You're biting at the, at the bit. Is that what they say? Yeah. Chomping. Chomping at the bit. Whatever. Mixed metaphors. Fine. Um, chomping at the bit to get into the text. Uh, but this question as to uh, why read John? What, how is John distinct or unique? And then also who wrote, uh, or excuse me, who is John writing to? It really frames how you read the whole book. Um, because you could, I, I didn't say this last week, but it, it's worth pointing out, you could read this in a different way. Uh, and, and actually, most of the, I think most of the study of John that I did, uh, at seminary even, hmm, I think, yeah, I would say most, was considering John as writing to a Greek audience. And the reason for that is in John chapter 1. And, and, and then elsewhere throughout the book where he speaks of the logos, the logos, which is the word. But it's a, it's a Greek term, logos. You'll see it, you know, N-R-K, hein, logos, right in the beginning of chapter one. Um, the logos was a philosophical, Greek philosophical term um, that referred to, I'm going to speak a little bit off the cuff here, so I'm not, I may be a little off on this, but um, it's referring to, the universal, universal knowledge, right? And so the Greeks were pursuing, you know, the word, meaning what orders everything throughout all creation. You can see this play out um, in what later became known as the Fibonacci sequence. Anybody know about this? I know I've told the kids about this before. Do you know the Fibonacci sequence? Okay. Um, I'll just show it. But th- this, is, this was a Greek... Sorry if you can't see there, Marlon. This was a Greek uh, thing that they discovered, but Fibonacci, the Italian, who later gave his name to it, or his name was given to it. So you've got, we'll just diagram it this way. You have a square, we'll call this one. Then you add another square, and what is it? One. Now you add two. This is, you double it. You add this to that, that's two. Then what? I can't remember how this goes. Then you add a cube, that's four, right? Now what's 4 plus 4? This would be 16. I think that's right. Is that right? No, I'm doing the sequence wrong. 8. 8. Yeah. Yeah, and then do another one, and now we're 16. Right? And it just keeps going. Actually, it's... it's, I got it right. I got it right. I got it right. 4 plus 4, 8. 8 plus 4, 12, actually. I think it's how it goes. 12 plus 20. 20. And what ends up happening... If you visualize this, it ends up being a, a spiral. Um, and they, they, what the Greeks discovered is that, I made a spiral a little big there, but what they discovered is that um, they could see this pattern throughout all of creation. They could see it in, in the conch shell. They could see it in the, um, what are the ferns that grow, right? In the way that the fern leaf expands out. Isn't there another name for that? Yeah, probably golden, the golden ratio is part of it. 
um, or the uh, uh, Golden Spiral is another name. But there's probably other names too. Uh, and so then they applied this. They actually applied this to their to like things like architecture. So the way they would build the building is they would use the proportions of the sequence. And they and so the <laughs> modern architects are like, well, how do these? So the roofs are gone, but how how are the large parts of these structures still standing today? We don't even know. How do they construct these things? Well, this is part of the answer, actually, is that they use these ratios that they saw within creation, you know, in multiple, like in species, in animals and in plants, and, and they applied it to the way they built the structure. And what were they trying to do? Again, is they, this is just one example of trying to find find this universal truth written in all things and in all people. So, and some of that, sometimes that was philosophical. So ideas about who we are. And, and that, that, that's all kind of bound up in this idea of the logos, this universal truth. Then John says that in the beginning was the word, was this universal truth, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's a Greek idea. The reason I brought all this up, yeah. That's a Greek idea that's being imported here, uh, it's argued. Um, but maybe actually it's a little bit different. And when we talk about chapter one, I don't, I don't know to find somebody who teases this out. Maybe John is actually appropriating a Greek term to describe actually a, a Hebrew idea, an idea that that's in the temple or tabernacle or synagogue, right? um, rather than trying to import all these Greek philosophical ideas into a term. That's the hard thing with language, right? Especially with a gospel that, um, you know, is for relatively new Greek speakers, you know, and uh, for a congregation. So that's, that's the danger of trying, because we're going to do this every week, of importing a lot of meaning into a word that may or may not be there, right? The word may have this context, and I think, I think John is, is playing with the idea, the Greek idea. But, but the argument I'm trying to make for you last week, and we'll continue it today, is that this is written um, by John to Jews, um, who he would have be Christians. So it's, it's an evangelical preaching um, in the synagogues even, um, or even in the temple, depending on how you date the book. But I, you know, before, the, I said as early as I think 45 maybe, 48 AD, um, which is a couple of decades before the destruction of the temple, right? All right, so uh, if you need last week's, I still have copies of that, but I think you were all here, right? You were all here last week. So we left off, um, I, I told you about many stories or dialogues that don't occur in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Welcome. We have the prologue, that whole John chapter 1 to 18. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, um, the whole discourse on the bread from heaven, the raising of Lazarus, the washing of the disciples' feet, the promise of the paraclete, that's the comforter or Holy Spirit, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which we heard on Wednesday, um, for our midweek service. And then the whole upper room episode is extended by way of a five chapter discourse, which includes uh, both the high priestly prayer and, uh, and the promise of the paraclete, among other things. And then there's, there's frequent references to going uh, to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles, uh, more so than you see in the synoptics, which I would suggest then, um, well, two things. One, uh, John has in mind Jerusalem from the get-go. They go there right away in chapter 2. Jesus, he doesn't delay going to Jerusalem until his passion, the way you see it in the other Gospels, or just briefly alluded to, well, he went to Jerusalem and came back to Galilee. 
um, Jesus is in Jerusalem a lot. And also, uh, this character of long discourse, we see a little picture of that maybe in the Sermon on the Mount, which it's uh, rabbinical, um, which the rabbis today still, still operate this way. We actually operate this way too at the catechism. So Jesus will say, uh, what does it say? And you say, well, um, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, right? And a great, another is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, Jesus, and then Jesus would say, well, what does this mean? And or, that's what Luther says too, right? But Jesus would say, and they, they'd say, well, that means da-da-da-da-da. And Jesus would say, well, but I say unto you, this is what it means, right? And then they go, and there's this dialogue back and forth. Um, in John, you see the same sort of dialogue that <laughs> sometimes, and other times it's just these long like like John chapter six, these long sermons, basically, um, maybe more like the Sermon on the Mount, but less dialogue, just just excursus or discourse is the word, um, and that's also rabbinical. I think it's hard to nar- narrow. Like the only time the rabbis talked is when they would sit, you know, with the with the men at the gate, the elders at the gate, right, and they would just talk about like like you would talk about baseball scores. They would just talk about what God's word says. Um, well, they probably did that, but but also when you had a teacher, um, you hear this in John a couple of times as well as the others. Jesus will sit down, and everybody else is standing. And when he sits down, that means this is the guy who's going to talk. Which for us is completely backwards, right? You're all sitting, and I'm standing, which means I'm the one who's supposed to talk. Um, yeah. So any any thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, more uniqueness. So. Uh, I gave you a page number. It's not immediately obvious what page is the one we're starting on, maybe. More examples of uniqueness. Um, <clears throat> this is the other aspect. Not only in John are there unique accounts, but they're also... Can you make sure everybody gets one? Thank you. Um, there are also accounts that are written in a di- or told in a different way or with a different purpose. Okay. So he'll tell the same story, but he'll, he'll be saying it for a different reason. And sometimes... Uh, well, we'll see that in a minute. Hold on. For example, synoptic gospels report the cleansing of the temples. Temples. Where's my pen? Temple at the end during their passion accounts, right? We talked about that last week. And then in John's gospel, it's right away in chapter two. He goes and cleanses the temple. In John, the feeding of the 5,000, John calls a sign uh, that introduces then a long discourse about the bread of life, whereas in Matthew, especially, he, he feeds the 5,000 and then they just move on. And he doesn't really attach, he doesn't, he doesn't, Jesus himself doesn't give us words to kind of explain the significance of this event, right? And you know the bread of life um, discourse, you know, whoever, well, the most remarkable statement in there among all the remarkable statements is whoever um, does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. And which is, that would be a, that might bother a Greek, um, but it would be scandalous to a Jew. To, to you never ate the animal with its blood in it. You always drain the blood. That was because the blood blood was life. Um, meaning also, if you drank the anim- the blood of an animal who had died, you died. That's that was the the thought. Their blood had death. So all the Germans with your blood sausage, um, Jews have a problem with that. All right. Uh, so so in John, we're going to get a whole explanation as to what that what the significance of that event really was 
Um, the healing of the blind man is another example here where it leads into then the good shepherd parables and the blindness of the Jews and the seeing of faith, right? So, Jesus, so this event of healing the blind man is not just he can see in a physical sense, but then John gets into, with Jesus' own words, what does this mean? What, what kind of healing are we talking about? Or what the, the healing is a sign of a, of a, um, a greater healing, we would say, um, spiritually. And that, hmm, that can be a problem for, for us. Um, sometimes we're, we're so quick to move away from the physical into the spiritual meaning. Do you know what I'm saying? So, you know, Jesus says, whoever desires to eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. Well, even at the time of the Reformation, um, there were like the Swiss reformers who said, well, that's only spiritual eating. It's not actual eating and drinking. It's not actual, it's not the Lord's Supper. It doesn't refer to that. Luther even said, this is, doesn't demonstrate the Lord's Supper. Um, well, of course it doesn't because it's not Christ saying, take this bread and, and say these words and take this cup. So but, he, but it is saying that in order to, to have life, you need to receive the source of life um, in his flesh and blood, not in some kind of, metaphorical flesh and blood sense. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say spiritual eating instead of physical eating? Do I need to back up on that? I'll give you a little bit. The, uh, t- by spiritual eating, uh, this would be our Reformed friends, that side of 57 primarily, right? Uh, who would say that, yes, you do eat Christ's flesh and you do drink his blood, but only in a spiritual way, not in a physical way, not in your mouth. Um, and you do that by ascending in faith to heaven where Christ is, and they're feasting in this supernatural kind of way. But uh, as far as what's happening here, it's only, um, I don't know how you want to say it, just a sign of this greater reality, uh, which is actually Augustinian, following St. Augustine. Whereas, um, you know, we would say, no, actually you are receiving Christ's body and blood. The same body and blood that was crucified upon the cross is what you're receiving in the supper, because that's what Jesus says. And Luther famously at the, um, uh, where was that, at Marburg. So he was in a debate with um, Ulrich Zwingli. I remember I said Swiss reformers. He's in a debate. And they agree on 13 and a half doctrinal points until they get to the Lord's Supper. And they're just going back and forth, back and forth. Because Ulrich is like, well, you go to heaven. And, and Luther's like, no, is, is, is means is. And he even carded that, or not carded that, carved that into the table. Legend, probably. But he's just so aggravated. You know, when people just keep saying things and you're just like, I'm not getting through to him, then you just like an aggravation. You're just, he's just carving with his steak knife into the table. Um, you know, uh, what would it be? Probably est, right? Yeah, est, est. Uh, you know, it is. Jesus says, yeah, you knew the story. So uh, Jesus is doing the same sort of thing here is to actually say, well, this blind man being healed, that actually happened. That's not just some kind of metaphorical event, but it does indicate also the kind of healing that we all, blindness we all have and that we need um, corrected, which is the, the blindness of faith. We, we don't see Jesus for who he is, which is a theme in John. Um, yeah, again, the synoptics don't attach any, teach, any teachings to the event. It's just the man is healed and we move on. Okay, questions so far? Oh, keep going. All right. Sorry, this is a little bit more luxury, but that's okay, because notes are good. John's cast uniquely includes these characters, Nathaniel, Nicodemus, and Lazarus. Um, and we see them show up again at the cross, right? 
Nicodemus is at Jesus's cross only in John. And who else? Is it Nathaniel? Is the other guy? It's Nicodemus and, no, um, and Joseph of Arimathea, right? But they're both, in John's gospel, we find out they're both Jews. And they're actually important Jews. They're of the council, um, but secretly for fear of their, their other people. So you see already the conversion of even high-ranking Jews in John's gospel within that story, uh, uniquely, that's not in the synoptics, which again, I think helps, helps make the point here. Uh, Philip and Thomas in John's gospel have speaking roles, you know? So unlike my grade school production of Robin Hood, where I was an extra merry man, they actually had to write me into the script, which means I had no speaking part. I just kind of stood around with a, a skirt and whatever uh, merry men wear. Uh, Philip and Thomas actually get to talk. <laughs> so, uh, and Andrew, too. Andrew's in the other Gospels, and sometimes he's listed in the, the famous trio of Matthew, or Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, his brother, sometimes. Um, but not always. And then, but in John's gospel, he actually has a pretty important role, which you see uh, we'll get to in chapter one, and then again later in chapter 12. Um, but oh, th- I didn't note this, but it's worth noting now. They're not actually called the sons of Zebedee in John's gospel. I think maybe only once. But the rest of the time, it's just Andrew and John. The, the characters, yeah, actually I say this in the next statement, or the second the next statement, so I'll hold on on that. Sorry, I get ahead of myself. Uh, Also, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple, that's a unique um, character in John's gospel. uh, I would make the argument, I think it's still valid, I think it's valid that this is the reference to the author of the gospel. So rather than call himself, well, and I, John, saw these things. He's saying, there's all these hints of the beloved disciple. Yeah, wrong. What are we going to explain? How many different Johns we read about it and how they're differentiated. So the John who wrote the gospel. Right. Was this Jesus' brother? Well, see, that's that's the argument. I tried to make it last week a little bit by a later dating of John, is that it's not even it's even John the seer is somebody different than John the the evangelist, meaning uh, the the one who writes the revelation of John is not the same guy. Um I'm that's not the traditional position. Yeah. Some would say no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that. I like the idea of John's gospel coming pretty early, about 50 AD, maybe a little bit before. Um, but then he's writing Revelation after the destruction of Jerusalem and shortly before his death. The same John, that's the son of Zebedee. Yeah. That's actually the minority view um, when it comes to Revelation. So nobody knows who all these. It's hard to keep them straight. I think in John's gospel, it's inherently, or it's actually a very important question um, because he claims to be an eyewitness and he claims to be there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, and it, in one sense, it's possible for someone else to record John's witness, but we don't have indications that this is a scribal transmission. Uh, an example of this would be Luke's gospel. Well, Luke was not one of Jesus's disciples. He doesn't claim to be an eyewitness like John does. Um, but he does give us, I think, hints to, to show us that he's interviewing eyewitnesses. Luke is your minor, right? Yeah, yeah, he's picked up on a missionary journey. So, um, for example, I mean, probably the most notable example is that Luke is known for, for the infancy narratives, right? We hear Luke chapter two for um, Christmas. And uh, 
there's a lot of details about the birth of Jesus that Matthew and Mark don't really seem to have or maybe picked up through other sources. Whereas Luke is very clear to say, uh, Mary pondered these things in her heart. She treasured them. She stored them up, which I think is not just that like, oh, this is a special moment and I'm so happy. Um, but more, um, she committed these, these things to memory and are recalling them to me, Luke. Well, I'm, I'm the scribe who's interviewing her. So I, that's a literary device that's, that's I, I'm going to speak out of turn maybe, but I think, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's pretty common, is to give those kind of indicators within the text that this, that this isn't hearsay, this is actual uh, testimony that's being recorded but narrated in a particular way. The ancient world, this is worth noting right now, they're just not concerned about our modern, I, by modern I mean like post-enlightenment, scientific ideas of history. John, you teach history, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the way we, we think of history now is linear event, right? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, and this led to this. And then, of course, any historian knows that actually it's a far more complicated than just point, you know, step one, step two, step three. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's reading a three-volume, and I can't remember who the author is, you might be interested in this. Three volumes, each volume is like a thousand pages on the Third Reich. And like the first volume, you know, so like a thousand pages of historical, just narrated historic data, is just everything that goes into the Third Reich. The, the German mythology, I mean, you have to spend a lot of time on all the mythological ideas. It's like, there's, it's a constellation of things, and it's not just one causation and one fact. And so history works that way. Well, the way you tell a story, you can tell a story a couple different ways. Um, for different, for different maybe purposes or to show different aspects of the same events, right? So is Jesus, is Jesus for example, undermining, or not undermining, but superseding, we should say, um, the Jewish, all the Jewish uh, rites, everything that's been instituted by God from Leviticus. Is he fulfilling those things? Yes, and John's concerned about that. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are too, but to a lesser extent. Whereas they're more concerned, perhaps, about um, uh, the, not, not so much signs or miracles, like we see with John, but more about um, lineage, heritage. What? Tradition. And tradition. Yeah, Matthew, tradition especially. Yeah. But Luke is, more, is, is really about heritage, uh, family, son of David, son, you know, city of David, all that. Matthew has that too. Mark is just in a big hurry <laughs> all the time. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Uh, and immediately, it's like, you know, it's, it, it almost reads like it, the whole thing happened in about three weeks. Because he's in a big hurry. So anyway, there are different ways of telling the same story and for different purposes. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, oh, and this I, I almost said before, but it's worth saying now. Again, Peter, James, and John are not given this like special kind of like this, what do you want to call this? This is like the church council <laughs> of the disciples. They don't have that status in John. There's actually quite a bit. It's more like the Lord's Supper room there. It's just every, there's more equanimity between all of the members of, of the apostolic band, if you like. All right. Uh, this is a big one. I actually have multiple books on this. Is uh, symbolism in John, the use of, la- of language and words. And we'll, we'll hit on these as we go through the text. But images of water, light, blindness, death, and life, eating and drinking. And that's only to name a few. Um, so he, he will play with 
uh, with water, especially when regards to baptism, right? And uh, like with Nicodemus or, or uh, oh, even the pool at Siloam and there are multiple stories uh, and, and showing baptism from different aspects through talking about water, okay? Uh, this is a unique one. And uh, this one is probably, this is the most Lutheran thing that John does. That's really anachronistic, but <laughs> we'll just say it. John speaks of the crucifixion as exaltation and glorification. Um, and so we, we really probably emphasize that in our confession, that the cross is not like the worst possible moment in the history of mankind, but it's actually, it's the apex of, of all histories is on Good Friday. Um, maybe less so than Easter even. Easter is just proof of what, that Good Friday was, was what God said it would be, which is, you know, the grave could not hold him because death was defeated, if you want to put it that way. Um, so when you see this right away in chapter one, when, when I am lifted up, I will draw, is that right in chapter one? Maybe it comes later. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Or, you know, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the word for lifted up there is, um, I think, oh, I just like, uh, upsao. That's what it is in Greek. And I gave you examples of that there. I didn't give you the Greek because I didn't want to make you feel uh, overly taught to. <laughs> Maybe too late for that. Uh, but you got some examples there of exaltation. And then also glory. I know we talked about this um, when we were studying Micah, but that uh, probably my favorite artist on, when it, as far as picturing the crucifixion is, um, is Rembrandt, you know, the Danish guy. Um, I saw quite a, I think the largest collection of Rembrandt paintings are in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. And so um, I didn't even know that until I'm walking in. I'm like, there's like a Rembrandt around every corner. You know, they stole them from Europe when they were fighting there, but they've returned quite a bit of stuff now, actually, the Russians have, especially from Germany. Yeah, it was a big thing, art theft. They're still finding things. They're still finding things, yeah. But anyway, Rembrandt and his crucifixion, Rembrandt's known for contrast of light and dark, which means he also then fits very nicely with John. But he, well, I'll give another painting first. Where I think I used this online, Maybe, Ron, you pointed this out to me on our preparation, but the stilling of the storm, where it's like darkness all around, but yet in the boat is Christ and there's light upon him, right? So in the midst of all the darkness is the light. Same thing with his crucifixions, his multiple. Um, it's darkness, which is in the text too, right? You know, but, but it's like exaggerated dark. And then, but, but the cross is illuminated. Christ is illuminated because he is the light. Even in the midst of death, he is the light. That darkness, there's light. In that death, there is life. And so John is really, um, uh, he really emphasizes that the glory of God is not, we, it's not upon the mountain. It's not in the burning bush. It's, in, it's not in the temple. The glory of God is known in the cross of Christ, which is the most inglorious, is that the right word? I think so. Inglorious moment in history, it seems. The death of God is actually the fullness of the glory of God revealed. It's upside down, yeah. Speaking of art, are there any examples of artwork in the Old Testament, in the Bible itself? Oh, as far as, of artists, as far as painting, or like a drawing? Jesus, Jesus is drawing in the sand, making <laughs> figures in the sand. 
And it doesn't tell us what, what are in the dust. It doesn't tell us what those figures were. Um, well, but it's, <laughs> there's the, the statues to yeah. Diana and all this. But yeah. Yeah. As far as uh, Christian art, I don't know if I heard it. No, that's a unique... Um, actually, there are many arguments in the early church about um, the place of, of art, specific iconography, images, statuary, meaning, you know, like what we have with Christ, you know, with his hands outstretched upon the altar, or the stained glass windows on either side. I was thinking, I just thought of this the other day, that there's actually three images of Christ right in front of us there, which is uh, maybe a Trinity reference. I don't know if it was intended or not, or it's just we have two windows, and regardless. Um, so especially the, what's called the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which was uh, really a church council trying to deal with uh, the teachings of a man named John of Damascus. Uh, but it's ecumenical, so it was the whole church gathered to try to hash out um, how, how are we to relate to artwork. Because you're right, Ron, in Old Testament, um, apart from where God institutes it, um, they don't figure things or people. They'll figure things, but not people or animals even, right? So the serpent on a pole is pretty, that was a pretty offensive thing that actually God had said to do. Um, and he also said that you can't picture, you know, God and live, right? And you can't look upon him, so you can't, you can't even paint him. Um, and artistry actually is not, not really attributed to, to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites, um, Artistry seems to come more in the pagan cultures. Okay. It seems like more most of the artwork was done as far as non-Christian, like the mm. golden calf. Yeah, right. And the statues of Ashtoreth and all that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or the totem, actually. Right. I mean, it was actually a totem pole for for uh, Astra. Um, totemic meaning, like if you pray to it, some magical is going to happen to you. Um, Kind of like a rabbit's foot or something, but the uh, no, you're right, Ron. There is, but there are exceptions to that. Um, think of the tabernacle, especially the temple, where God ordained the decoration, and the decoration is very intentional. Um, like, like with the pomegranates, we heard that on Wednesday, right? I mean, he has images of pomegranates. Why pomegranates upon the the hem of the priest's garment? Symbolism of wine. Well, it's it's connected to. I guess you could have pomegranate wine. Um, but that fruit is uh, unique in that it has, it's, it's one and yet it's many, right? Because the, the pomegranate has how many seeds probably? I don't know, hundreds? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And so that's usually actually, a, a, now in Christian artwork is going to be a sign of the resurrection, right? That in Christ that all, many are, are drawn to him and, and many have received life in him, in the one. But um, also on the, on the walls of, of the temple, you have trees that are carved into the walls. Um, I think in indicating both temple and tabernacle are structured in such a way that they're representing the Garden of Eden, which, was to, oh, which we, we don't have access to, but, now we, but we actually do through Christ now. So, so there is a lot of art in there. There's art, but it's not the kind of art that like we have where it's pictographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it might be more iconographic. So, so this came up in the early church. I mentioned this, right? Is um, can you, the word is venerate an icon, an image, um, which the Eastern church does. And the Western church had a little bit of an issue with it, which is um, they consider 
an, an image of, of, say, a saint, actually to, to be the, the, worthy of the same kind of respect that a Bible does. You know, that you don't throw a Bible in the garbage or you don't, you don't throw it. I mean, you, you treat it, or a flag for, for you know, a patriot, right? For an American citizen. You, the flag is, is venerated. It's, it's respected because of, not because of what it is, but what it represents, right? And so they said the same thing about art. Um, that you could treat an art with respect. I mean, even to, um, you know, like sit before an image and just kind of consider um, everything that's connected to that individual or that event that's being pictured. Uh, And that included, of course, the crucifix, right? So a a cross with the corpus upon it. Um, It wasn't until really the Reformation that there were those who said, um, not Lutherans, that said, uh, we can't have any images. And they came through, there was the, um, during Luther, Luther was in the Wartburg and uh, the guy he left in charge in Wittenberg, I'm trying to remember his name. So I'm looking at Ethan. What was his name? Uh, no, not him. I can't remember the guy's name. They left in charge in Wittenberg to kind of, to, to handle St. Mary's, um, which is right by the cloister. He, um, decided that he was going to stop wearing vestments. He was, they were going to get rid of the crucifix. They were going to take, get rid of all the sacred art. They, they actually threw windows, to, or, excuse me, rocks at the windows. Uh, and then it spread. It was kind of, it was, it was a revolt and it spread to other churches. And there was a lot of destruction that happened. That destruction continued to happen by some of the more reform-minded people. Luther actually came out of hiding in the Wartburg, came back about this time of year uh, in Vakavit Sunday, so the first Sunday in Lent, and preached for a whole week about how you guys are idiots. You know, maybe someday we don't need these things, but for now, there's, what are you doing? You're, you're, actually, um, you're actually denying the freedom of the gospel, that, that we're free to have images or not. We're free to, um, to wear these vestments or not. Uh, you, you are making a law where there is none, right? So on the one hand, saying you have to have them is a law where God has not made it. On the other hand, saying you have to get rid of them is a law where God hasn't said it. So, uh, and ever since then, depending on your background and who you encounter, um, you know, especially among the Protestants, who Lutherans are not counted among Protestants, by the way, uh, even though the, I don't know, the media and the press aren't very good about distinguishing. Uh, we're not really protesting. <laughs> There's nothing, I mean, at this point, uh, we're, not, we're not a protesting group. We're actually a reforming group, right? Um, regardless of that, uh, Lutherans can get caught up in kind of Protestant ideas that we, we have to protest like images, for example. That's just not part of the, not part of our background. So let's see. Glorification. Oh, thanks about images. Yeah. And I would say John actually does draw our attention to that cross many times, which I give you here, you know, chapter three, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter 12, uh, chapter 13, chapter 17. So as we're getting close, getting to the cross, it's always in our mind, mind's eye from actually from chapter one, even we see this as well. Uh, here's a big one. And we're going to, I'm going to hold off telling you too much about this until we get to them. But John's use of the I am statements. So it can be the divine name. I am who I am, or I, I will be who I will be, or I, I, I am who has been who has made everything, you know, a creator statement. You can understand those a couple diff- that statement a couple different ways. So I am, you notice what happens when Jesus says I am? 
the Pharisees pick up stones to throw at him, right? Because he's utter blasphemy. Only God can say that's his name, which is actually an important point. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's, that's the, uh, those are the absolute sense, right? And then also with predictions. So I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. I am. Do these the all for me. I am the Lord, yeah. Um, those, are, those are more of this predictive sense or attaching um, ideas to it. All right, so we'll talk about those I am's as we bump into it. But you'll find, uh, I left out the kind of heavy theological term there, but they're connected to theophanies. Do you know that word? Have we talked about theophany before? Theo, fanny. And you know this part from epiphany, right? Which means to... Reveal? What? Reveal? Yeah, reveal, to open... To expose fauna, this is the word for light, by the way, right? Like uh, photo, I guess, is in there. Um, but theophany, theo, you know what theo says, right? I heard, I almost heard it. God. God, yeah. So uh, revelation of God, right? So actually, when when uh, God said, God, and I would say Christ says to Moses in the burning bush, I am. He's revealing to Moses who he is in his name. His name actually, unlike our names, actually means something. <laughs> Maybe your name means something. Mine does. Does your, I don't know. What does Vorpal mean? It means um, like a wooden marble. Oh, really? Yeah, a stake. Like a, pole, like a land divider or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ron the land divider. <laughs> It's like Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and so, but God's name matters because of um, everything that's caught up in it. Um, but again, John is using I am because this would be my argument, and we'll tease this out as we study, that there's a lot of pious superstition connected to, to the name I am um, throughout the Second Temple period, so beginning about 500 B.C., all the way through to the destruction of the temple, they treat the name um, as if the name in itself is like, um, well, the name is holy. It's set apart by God. It's God's name. Um, but that, that like you can't use it at all. So they'll, they'll do substitution. Instead of saying God's name, I am, you'll actually say Adonai, um, or, or in Greek, Kyrios. Adonai and Kyrios mean Lord. So you call him Lord, not but not Lord all lowercase or uppercase. You've seen that in their Bible? Yeah, lowercase, uppercase. Right, which is which is the I am name, or um, some ways it's Yitveh or Yahweh. You've probably heard that before. Yahweh is how we say it in English. Um, so they, they that's new in the second temple. Um, they don't speak his name and towards the end. And John is like, no, actually you can say his name and you, you can say it all the time. Because in his name is everything of who he is. So um, we call him the I am as well. And we're not afraid to call his name. Actually, we know his name is Jesus too. <laughs> so we, uh, back to the image question, but same with name, um, is that John is very careful to say, no, you can picture God. You can see God and live in Jesus, right? Which is why we also picture Jesus because he's not God in the heavens. He's God in human flesh who, you know, could be seen with eyes is very important. Um, so we can picture him, although I don't know if he's always looking like Kenny Loggins or 
however he's usually painted, you know, long curly hair and clean shaven, and, which, a Jew, clean shaven? Really? Have you he read the Bible? even a, a what's, what's the word? What was Samson? Oh, he's always pictured as a European too. What was Samson? Oh, as a so Nazarene. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure. That's why the clean shaven. Yeah, that's right. Nazarite. Was that too. They connect Nazarene with Nazarite, which is, uh, that's a little, that's a stretch. Yeah. There was an uh, article about a uh, archaeologist in the catacombs in Rome found a drawing of Jesus on the wall. Oh, man. I, I think there are. Yeah. Well, he would have had long hair. That's probably possible. I mean, they didn't trim their hair like we do. Um, but they also didn't shave unless you were a Nazarene. Nazarite, excuse me. Yeah, if you were a Nazarene, you wouldn't shave. Or cut your hair. Oh, yeah, like more like John the Baptist, too. Yeah, you always think John and, John and Jesus should have looked probably more similar. Regardless. Um, but same with the name. And actually, we know this is true. I mean, Jesus, even in the Synoptic Gospels, he says, call upon me in every trouble. Right? I mean, that, in various ways. Uh, or that's how Luther confesses it. You know, how do you keep the second commandment? You don't use his name in vain to curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or, or deceive by his name, right? But you call upon it in all times. Jesus says, pray. When you pray, say this, our Father. Um, actually, yeah, you can, uh, you're actually not discouraged from using God's name. You're encouraged to use it, but to use it um, in faith, right? In trust. So that's, John's very much interested in that. And uh, I mean, really, John then is probably more responsible for us praying the way that we do than, than the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that, um, think about what we do is when we pray a prayer, we like to use one of, his, one of God's titles that's relevant to the prayer, right? So, hmm, here's an example. If you were, if you were looking for um, something related to creation, you, you might say, oh, creator, you know, who gave, um, gave us life, now restore life to, you know, um, I don't. Paul Penier is in the hospital, for example. He just went in yesterday. You know, who 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 is ill and needs you know healing, right? He's long-standing illness, but you know, specific in this context. Well, you called upon God's name in relation. You called upon the name that actually corresponds to the need, and uh, that's that's great for for us for the sake of faith, right? To say now, has God promised to answer the prayer? Well, actually, um, yes. Um, but we're also praying on the basis of, you know, who he is and, and what he's promised. Both things. All right. Good. Purpose. All right. Ready, Ron? You were asking for this last week. I told you we'd get to it. Here it is. Uh, our conclusions about the place of writing, the date of writing, the authorship, and the purpose of the gospel are of one piece. They all go together. And so we have to talk about the purpose and then that will help the place and date and authorship. And I'm not going to get into all the details about that because I know you want to dig into the text. But John explicitly states his purpose. I didn't give you the chapter, but it is chapter. Wouldn't it be the last chapter? This is at the end. No, it's not the last. Chapter 21 is extra. This is 20. 20 verse 30. Truly Jesus did many other signs. There's that word signs, which we'll talk about. In the presence of his disciples... And then here's another important one, which are not written in this book, uh, but these are written, again written, that you may believe, so believe is an important word, that Jesus is the Christ, right? So Christ comes first, also the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his 
name, so there's name as well. So it's a really loaded statement, which we'll, we'll probably deal with a lot more someday when we get there. I'm not making any promises. Uh, here, the evangelist is addressing his reader's hearers. I know that's kind of pedantic to keep saying reader's hearers, but he's writing a book, so he knows it's going to be read, but it's not meant to be read in the head. This is the ancient world. They read out loud, right? Why do kids learn? So why do we read out loud to kids? Because that's how we learn. Um, read me a story, mom. Right? Tell me a story. So that's what John's doing too, um, directly. But the, And even more so uh, in John 19.35, which I didn't give you that text. But what does he say in 19.35? You don't have your Bibles going. I'm not going to get there very quick either. It's just right before that. Oh, and he who has seen, that's the writer, has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these, This is at the end of the crucifixion. Uh, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken and another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. So, I mean, he's addressed, those are two very obvious times where the, what do we call this, breaking the fourth wall? Right, where the actors are acting and then they step out and say, talk to the audience directly. I don't know, it's kind of a gag now. People do it all the time. They're in movies, right? Where they'll, they'll be interacting and then they kind of step out. It was a big show. Uh, I was thinking House of Cards, that's on Netflix, you probably didn't see that one. But where like the character will be interacting with another character and then, then we'll just turn aside and talk directly to the camera and tell you what was just going on in his head. Yeah. John's doing that right here. Um, many, many other signs, many other statements, and also back in 1935. I've seen this. I know that it's true. I'm telling you the truth so that you may believe. Yeah. In case you were curious. <laughs> um, so who is he speaking to? The gospel narrative is about the signs Jesus did in the sight of the disciples. But again, written in the book, this harkens back to the signs Moses did before the people in Exodus 4, 40 excuse me, 430, uh, to legitimize him as the one sent by God. So not only does he does, do signs, but he also comes with the name I am. Right? Moses asks him, who, what, am I, what am I supposed to tell the people? Who sent me? What am I, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? He says, I am. Tell them I am sent, sent you. Um, which is interesting because that means if he says that name, they would actually recognize that name. And they do. They accept Moses on the basis of the name that he comes. Because he actually wouldn't have known that name unless God had told him the name. Why? What household was Moses raised in? Pharaohs. Pharaohs. Yeah, from about, I don't know, two years old or so. He never learned the name. Um, and then he comes saying, I am sent me, which they knew. And they, then they accept him, right? Because he knows the name. Uh, we were talking about Peter and Paul, right? Paul comes saying, saying all sorts of things that Paul shouldn't know to Peter, and they don't accept him. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, Moses does signs too. You know about these signs, right? Uh, Moses is kind of a sign guy. So I think there's a lot of Moses in the background here with John. These signs also showed the people that God was the Lord so that they would believe him and then trusted the one whom he sent, Moses. Right? So Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses, which, by the way, if Aaron says them, it's the same as if Moses said them. 
Aaron's a spokesperson. He's not the, the guy. And then uh, Moses did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped him. So they trusted. See how that works? All right. So we have the same thing in, in uh, John's gospel. There's a new Exodus. There's a new Moses. Um, and that sometimes bothers people because we think of Moses as the lawgiver. So did Jesus come with a new law? Well, in one sense, from the synoptics, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Is, yeah. But um, Jesus is the greater deliverer than Moses, you know, from a greater Egypt, if you like. And this new act, with, through a new act of salvation, that is death upon a cross, and a founder of a new covenant or new testament by his blood, right? So it's not that the old is gone, but the, but the new has come. Does that make sense? The old has been superseded by the new. Uh, I mentioned that he writes a book. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're doing okay. He writes a book, John uh, verse 30 there. This reminds us of the words of Moses to Israel regarding the testimony of Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 10, writing it in a book. The gospel writer is claiming his book to be scripture, uh, Torah, that's law, uh, but law not in sense of command, but law in sense of uh, God's word, and for the new Israel. So you see it here, Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Um, Jesus takes us on in John 14, for example, where Jesus now is the way that Moses said that we are to walk in. All right? So we don't need to go back to the Torah for that um, or to go back to Israelite ceremony or whatnot, because in Jesus we actually have the same way we have the word, we have the truth. Following so far? All right. Like I said, we'll just kind of crank through this so that we can get into the text next week. Third clue as to why he's writing this book, or who he's writing to, I should say, is that he wants them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, um, which, by the way, is the anointed one. We kind of just attach Christ as like Jesus' second name, his middle name, Jesus Christ, right? Um, but it's his title. It's his title. It means the anointed one. So it'd be kind of like Ethan the Elder, right? That's his title. The eldest, I should say, because you're the eldest. No, it's, it's not like that. <laughs> uh, but notice, too, that I mentioned this before, that anointed one, or Christ, came before Son of God, uh, which is just basic grammar that they, John wants to draw our attention to that title, and then Son of God secondary, secondarily. He actually, in, in chapter 1, verse 41, and 425, gives us Messiah, the Hebrew, but he does it in Greek, Messiah, and it's a, which means Christ, which is the Christ, or Christ, which means Messiah, I think is how he says it. So he, he shows us that when he says the word Christ or Christos, he's connecting that to Messiah or Messiah in Hebrew. Uh, it's the same, it means the same thing. It's just two different languages. And uh, again, think of the Jewish debates in the synagogues, which I'm arguing is the context. Look at Paul's preaching in Acts in the synagogues, immediately he preached the Christ, not the Son of God, not the Son of David, but the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God, right? So the, the one who was sent, who claimed to be the Son of God, is the Christ, the Messiah. 
Then all who were heard were amazed and said, Is not he who destroyed those who called on his, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests, referring to Paul, or Saul, as he's called here. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So that, that claim that he's the anointed one of the Messiah at the beginning puts us into the synagogue, puts us into the temple. That's my argument there. Um, it means, and it also means that as we're reading, we're, we really do want to tease out uh, what does it mean when we call him the Christ? Rather than just being a throwaway, like middle name for Jesus or last name, Jesus Christ, um, like John the Baptist. <laughs> it actually, well, actually, like John the Baptist, it actually describes who he is and what he's come to do, right? John comes baptizing, right? Uh, look, you can look at more here. Paul preaching in Thessalonica and Corinth, Apollos preaching, um, I can't remember where he's preaching, but Apollos in Acts 18. Um, and then again, the combination, anointed one, son of God. This is going to be a de- decisive, divisive, I should have said. Well, it's decisive too. A topic for Christians interacting in the synagogues. Claiming Jesus to be the Messiah, there's nothing worse you could really say. Right? Apart from saying, his name is I am, by the way, too. <laughs> right? So this means that John's gospel, oh, consider John the Baptist and baptism of Jesus. Yeah, this means that John's gospel is not making, it does this, but it's not really its purpose to make an apology so that you can explain what it means to be a Christian, right? So you can defend, this is what I believe. Um, it's true that it does that. You know, it, it demonstrates that the crucifixion was an actual event. John is very careful to do that. I saw it. I witnessed it, you know, that you may believe too. Right? So it does have that, what we call apologetic or defense kind of aspect. But really what's going on is more about, um, you know, how Jesus says it, dividing to the, the, you know, the sharp sword that divides to the, it's not Jesus, but it is Jesus it's in his word divides between, to the division between bone and marrow, you know, between joint and sinew, and just gets right to it. John is doing that. He's, he's pushing um, Jewish buttons, not for the sake of, well, comes later, not for the sake of you as Christians kind of understanding what you believe, although it does that, but really for the conversion of the Jews who hold um, to all of the old in the synagogue, who are holding on to that, so he needs to be the Messiah for this to, to, to happen. Uh, anointing of the Holy Spirit, that's attached to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world with John the Baptist. So you see him being anointed and then actually dying for the sins of the world. That's what it means to be Messiah. Um, and then I gave you 1 John 5. You maybe know this text. This is he who came, comes with water uh, and blood, comes by the Spirit. You know those three, and these three agree. I think we hear that in the Easter First uh, John, written by the same evangelist, <laughs> I would argue, um, picks up and explains, here are the main themes in John's gospel, water, blood, spirit, those three. And, th- and they're all meant to show us uh, who Jesus is, which means also that it's all about connecting baptism to the cross, because you have water and spirit at, the cross, at, the, at your baptism, and blood, washed in his blood, right? But then also at the cross, what happens? And I say it here, he hands over the spirit, right? And then out from his side, only in John's gospel, but out from his side with the spear pierced comes out 
again, water and the blood. So you have the cross connected to your baptism. Uh, so like Paul says, you know, by baptism, we were, we were buried, therefore, right? Into, baptism, into death. So we're connected to Christ's death so that we may rise again with him in our baptism. All right. Is that enough background? <laughs> Can you hold all that intention as we read? Or will I have to just kind of keep reminding you? This is a unique character. Well, see, that's a, that's a whole other uh, introduction page that I'm not going to do for you. But we'll tease that out. It's actually one of the most bothersome things for a lot of people is that is that I mentioned this last week in that, in that lesson, that there is no institution of the Lord's Supper in John's Gospel. I would argue it's presumed. It's always in the background, just like baptism is always in the background. I would suggest that John is preaching to Jews to show him, show Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Um, but also he's preaching um, in the context of Jews to convert to the Christian church that is practicing what? The preaching of Christ the, the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's in the background. It's the life of the church. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't institute actually either, even baptism. So neither baptism nor Lord's Supper are instituted in John's gospel. They're instituted elsewhere or commanded, if you like. Um, that doesn't mean they're not there. <laughs> but so John chapter 6 is a great example where it's not the institution of the Lord's Supper, but it does tell us something perhaps of the Lord's Supper, if that makes sense. So we don't go there to prove that the Lord's Supper is what God has given his church to do. But we do go there to learn um, about, you know, maybe why we ought to receive it, for example, or what we receive in the supper. Forgiveness, life, and salvation, as Jesus, or as Luther says. Does that follow? So the, the blood, yes, because the, in, the, in the blood is life. Um, I would say it is referring to both sacraments. Uh, there's blood everywhere <laughs> in the Jewish rite and then in the Christian church. We talk, everything is being, being atoned for, being covered in Jesus' blood. Even the word of absolution declared to you is the blood of, your bapti- of Jesus and that you receive in baptism washing over you again, in a way. Does that follow? All right. So now you can keep that intention. Uh, we'll dig into chapter one next time. And uh, you may depart in peace. Leaders, amen.